bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would help us with the understanding of your word. Not just as a momentary point of interest, but as something that will live with us as we go through our lives. For Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So we'll be continuing with our study of chapter 20 in the book of Revelation today, so please could you turn there now. So many years ago when I was a much younger and it must be said slimmer man, I went on a two week outward bound course back in Zimbabwe and of course many of you will know that there's also one of those here in the Marlborough Sounds. Outward Bound is a worldwide organisation with schools in many countries and they have the aim to show people that they can do a lot more than they think they can with just the right mental attitude and that's not so commonly known actually because Outward Bound has more of a reputation for tough physical activities but it's really about the mind. One of the activities we did was a chimney climb and in case you're not familiar with that term No, it's not required training for Santa. It is a way of getting up a narrow passage by bracing your feet on one side and your hands and your back on the other. And it's quite surprising what you can climb like this. Well, there were 12 people on the course I was in and so it happened. Well, actually it was inevitable because I was always the slowest on any hike that I was the very last person to attempt the climb. And this meant that over the course of about an hour and a half, I got to watch my fellow students slipping, falling and bleeding one after another. As you can imagine, I was not looking forward to my turn. In fact, I can recall that this particular time was one of the most outstandingly scary moments of my life. I was literally terrified when my turn came. So guess what happened next? The anticipation was not the actuality. It was easy. I never slipped, I never fell, and I never bled. The only one of us, in fact, who did that particular climb easily. I'm not saying that to boast that I was baboon-like in my climbing ability. Careful. What I am saying is that we ought to be careful what images we allow circumstances to build in our minds because often they are completely false. Today's passage presents us with an opportunity to consider how a wrong perspective can affect us in a spiritual sense. I have a couple of ideas. Firstly, it is possible that we may have filled the anticipation bin by giving Satan too much credit for his ability to control events or perhaps believing that his influence will ever end. Secondly, we might have added an unbalanced view of God's character, enjoying his love and mercy, but avoiding any suggestion of his equally potent holiness and justice. Hopefully, if you have not slept through the important bits as you usually do, and if you listen carefully, I'll give you an incentive not to later, by the end of this sermon we will have addressed both of these errors. So, let's read then Revelation 20, And I'm going to start right back in verse 1, but our specific text today will be verses 7 to 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. On a first reading, verse 7 can present us with a very troubling idea indeed depending on how we view the timing of the millennium. And this is because it suggests that if we think things are nasty right now then watch out because at some future point Satan is going to be let loose and things will become a whole lot worse. Well, possibly they will, but like I said in my last sermon, it's impossible to be sure that we have the right understanding of that timing, and so we must focus on the picture and what that is trying to tell us. Speculation without proven facts is not usually helpful. So, what is the picture trying to tell us? The editors of the New King James Version here have helpfully added a summary title to this section. Satanic Rebellion Crushed. I really like that. I like to think of Satan being crushed because of all the trouble he has caused. So this is exactly what this picture is about. Satan's rebellion being crushed. Well, we can all go home now. No, I'm afraid not. What more can we learn from and about that? Well, first of all, this is not a new picture because Satan's rebellion isn't new at all. God has not only reserved his promises to deal with the evil one once and for all, just for New Testament people, no. He got straight back into it. Because if we think right back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis, what is God's curse on the serpent, a picture of Satan? Anybody remember? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, while this does explain something about why we as humans generally hate snakes so much, just like the fat broad here in Johnny Hart's BC cartoon, poor snake, this is not what is meant in this verse. It's both a prophecy and a promise that Jesus, Eve's seed, although accepting a minor injury himself, will inflict a mortal blow on Satan. Sin and its principal advocate will be defeated permanently. 
And there are also a number of parallel prophecies in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, that have very striking similar images of attacking hordes and their consequent judgment, and which also include these names that we see here, Gog and Magog. I won't read them now because they are too long, but they do reinforce the point that God's people have always had this hope and certainty that in God's time, things will be restored to the way they should have been. And justice will be served. So like I said, this isn't a new picture or one just for for us now in 2018. God's promises stand consistent through time and here we see the picture of their fulfilment. What other comments might we make about this passage? Firstly, note that Satan is released. This implies a number of things. Obviously, firstly, he must have been locked up. But he hasn't escaped either by heroic effort or by cunning. Also, while incarcerated, he has clearly been completely subdued in terms of movement, although perhaps not an influence. Terrible things continue to happen in the world while he is in there, which point both to the activities of the subordinates and the dark possibilities of our own hearts. Lastly, as I've said, the suggestion that such extraordinarily horrid things might happen without his direct influence do cause us to wonder what he is capable of when he is completely free. But he can only be free when and if God says so and when it suits God's purposes. As we noticed earlier in this chapter, God has no difficulty at all in restraining his creation, Satan. He just sends an angel and the devil is in chains. Now, for the most part, I don't know your intimate life story. It may well include some truly awful experiences, ones you don't want to think or talk about, things that cause you to doubt God's existence and goodness. Well, don't feel alone. I've I've had those feelings too. It's so hard to understand why God allows these things to happen. But there is consolation meant in this scene because these times that hurt us so much will pass away with all the pain and confusion that comes with them because God can easily make it so when he wills it. There is great hope in the future. God will triumph both for his glory and as we shall see then our great good. And he proves that he has the power to do so by holding and releasing the chief architect of pain and confusion, at will and for his will. What happens next demonstrates the utterly depraved nature of Satan. One definition of good is that it is the absence of evil. And so naturally, the reverse is true. Evil is the absence of good. But humans love shades of grey, not black and white. And thus I believe we fail to appreciate that Inasmuch as there is no evil in God at all, there is also no good in Satan at all. Not one single bit. And that governs his behaviour in ways that on the face of it perhaps aren't so easily understood. Take this example. When these nice men in the blue uniforms come along with those shiny bracelets to take the criminal away and lock them up, society has three objectives. One, to remove them from circulation and stop them doing whatever nasty things they were doing. Two, they've been wicked 
they deserve to be punished. And three, hopefully two will be unpleasant enough that they'll think twice about carrying on with being a twit when they're finally let out. Well, clearly the character reforming aspect of Numbers 2 and this approach fails spectacularly with Satan. He has learned nothing from his jail time. It does not seem to matter to him that he was so easily locked away and that therefore his eventual complete failure and defeat is just as easy and certain. No. So what happens when the door is opened? He goes straight out, full steam ahead, and he immediately resumes his work of deception. And not just a few individuals, like you might think, so that perhaps he could fly below the radar and God doesn't see him, but no, it's on a grand scale to whole nations, as it says here, inciting them collectively to attack the people of God. That is a massive rebellion against God. And this is why we should be careful not to flirt at all with Satan's plans and schemes, because his intention for us is much more than just a cut on the pinky. It's very popular to portray hell these days as party central and just sin is just a light warm-up for the festivities there because we think that, or we even hear people saying to us, well, surely a little bit won't hurt you. But nothing could be further from the truth. Satan never ever changes. He is unrelentingly and single-mindedly going about his intentions for us which are profoundly bad. He does not ever water down his hatred for us by giving us a little good fun. He only wants utter evil, pain, misery, destruction on the largest of scales. And aside from the saving grace of Jesus, he will always achieve those in us, for we share in the love of wrong things with him. We love to join in. Make no mistake, no one is ever forced against their will to sin. No, we we do it willingly. We are certainly open to suggestion, Weak in the face of easy opportunity and Satan knows and prays on that but we cannot escape the fact that we bear personal responsibility to the Lord for each and every one of our actions. As we shall see in the next chapter those consequences do not bear thinking about. So do not be misled into thinking that Satan's objective is just to burn our eyebrows off because it is really total annihilation. Let's deal quickly with the matter of Gog and Magog. Now, I've already mentioned these entities through their appearance in Ezekiel 38 and 39. What are we to make of them? (laughs) Nothing specific is what I want to suggest. In Ezekiel there are some clues to who they are. For example, in 38.6 it is suggested that they are from the far north. And in 38.2 Gog is described as the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. Unfortunately, although we do have this information, the mists of history don't allow us to definitely identify them with certainty. We can't say that Gog was Bob the Great, who lived in Egypt from 480 BC to 333 BC and was married to Enid of the Smelly Feet. No. What these facts do make clear, though, is that they are a separate identity to the other nations, although allied with them against Israel. It's kind of like saying that Bob and Enid were at the party with the others. Here in Revelation, though, the sense is not the same. When we see language like gather them together, the idea is a collective one. 
There are no standout identities at this party, so the use is different. In this text, the intended use of Gog and Magog is a bit like the way we use the bogeyman today. The names don't describe any specific country or individual, but are intended to immediately create this picture in the mind's eye of a fearsome enemy horde, so that no further explanation is necessary. However, a lot of ink, well, let's be 21st century here, a lot of toner cartridges have been expended on ideas like Gog is the Prince of Russia, because if you look back to that text in Ezekiel, well, Russia sounds a bit like the word Rosh that's used there. And so the Prince of Russia is going to lead a latter-day army against Israel. So look out for that fellow Putin. But this cannot be proved, no matter what colour ink cartridge one uses. This kind of speculation just diverts us from the truthful and therefore really useful images of the victorious and sovereign Jesus and God that we can clearly see throughout the book of Revelation, that we can see right here in this passage. And they are put there for our encouragement. So please don't head down the rabbit trail of Gog and Magog. Let's have a quick recap. Satan is out of his cage. He's at full strength. We have some idea of how scary that might be from the things that are happening around us. He has successfully deceived nations all over the earth to come up against God's people. And that means if the time is right, actually to come up against you. So, what will happen next? Are you fit and ready for combat? Or is there some other way that you might be prepared? Do you remember that clip that um, Calfane played us a little while back from the Lord of the Rings? Those scary demon hordes with deformed faces and bulging muscles assembled, dramatically outnumbering the good guys. And then there were those inspiring speeches by the commanders, the battle cries, the close-up facial shots of the warriors, flags waving spears and swords glittering sharp. The time is near when they will crash together head on. Steel will strike steel and rend and tear and impale flesh. Blood will flow in torrents. Do you see that? How would you feel if you were there? Well, recognize that you might be because God could bring this about at any moment. Maybe now, maybe years after our deaths, but he will bring it. And because we don't know when, we must always be ready. Now I reckon that any one of us could be forgiven for feeling bowel-loosening fear and profound panic at such odds. The whole world described here, whose number is as the sand of the sea, arrayed against the people of God with Satan at their head. <laughs> That's not a me- an encouraging mental picture. But this is the whole point of the text that we're reading today. A moment ago I said we should always be ready and I asked, what does that mean? Should I always have a bag of food and clothes packed in the cupboard with a razor sharp sword next to it? Maybe I should see if I could get my hands on a rocket launcher with a nuclear warhead. No. Our preparation is internal and our model is Jesus, our commander. How does our Lord's life inform us? It says that our aim in all things should be calm and peace because that is how the Lord faced the terrible cross. 
Now that might sound a little silly given the alarming picture that I've just drawn, but like 1 Corinthians says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. When we read things like, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? And my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We can be certain that these are not merely words on a page. These are real promises and prophecies. Promises for today, for the troubles that we might meet today, and prophecies for a day described like the one here. The promises are sure and certain. The Lord says, I will never leave you. And so we can say, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We can also say, what can Satan and his hordes do to me? Nothing. And I can do nothing to them. I lack the power to do so. But God does not lack the power to do so. And so I can be calm and peaceful and let him deal with the ravening hordes. And he does. We are shown here that God sovereignly and personally intervenes. When all seems lost to humans, he steps in and he deals with the matter finally. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I love what the New King James Version says here. It says that the fire devours them. This is the language of a powerful hunger. A person who devours food is in a hurry. They jam it into their mouths and they chew and they swallow with little interest and taste. In no time at all, every scrap is gone because there is a fiery hunger in their belly that demands satisfaction. At the very beginning of this sermon, I said that this passage reminds us of two things. We firstly sometimes overestimate Satan, and secondly, we always underestimate God. I say always just because we're not able to appreciate just how great he is with our limited senses. When I read this word devour here, it reminds me that God is so hungry to deal with sin. How hungry he is, we love to think about his mercy and grace and love, but not about how he feels towards sin and rebellion. We, like, we don't like to think about that much because we know that if it were not for the atoning blood of Jesus, then we too are the target of that ravenous hunger. Whether we confront it or hide from it, the truth remains that the Lord's need so badly to be rid of sin, to devour it because it so deeply offends his holiness and righteousness. Well, that begs a question, doesn't it? If that is so, then why didn't he fix it straight away? And from our perspective here in the stream of time, this is a reasonable question. After all, if he is so very hungry, then why has he waited so long to finish with it? 
Unfortunately, scripture cannot explain that in words of one syllable, but it does give us some really, really strong ideas. And my personal belief is that it has to do with freedom of will. All of God's created beings have it, and it is what makes their love and service meaningful to Him. We love Him, and so He can love us. You may appreciate a robot that you have made to serve your every will, but you will not you will always know that you made it to do so, and you will never love it. It's merely a thing. God does not desire mere things, because he can make any amount of those at any time. And he does so with great ease. No. He made us to love and to be loved. I suspect that the Lord loves and values free will so much that he has allowed time to go by despite the risk of continuous sin so that no one can say that they weren't given a chance to think things through, to freely repent and turn back to him. In fact, I reckon this is why maybe we have this thousand years here that even Satan is given the opportunity to reconsider. But no, he goes immediately back to his usual ways. And that leads to this climax here. In this instant, God has given enough. Enough time, enough love, enough of himself. Now is the moment and there will be no further delay and we see the full expression of his hatred of sin directed through his holiness. The evildoers are consumed by heavenly fire, the symbol of divine judgment and their leaders, Satan, the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire not for annihilation, but for eternal torment. It's not just lights out, it's not just nothing. And let me add here that the language used here makes it clear that although the fire is a figure, a picture, since real fire can't harm a spiritual being, this remains as real, eternal, conscious punishment. Eternal conscious torment imagine those for a moment every day one of the things we underestimate about God is the quality of his justice it is always appropriate it is always justly delivered there is always an opportunity to avoid it but in application it is truly terrible and here in Revelation it is openly displayed it can't be avoided and that image might cause us some problems because we find it hard to reconcile the picture of a loving God and that is sometimes the only one coming from the pulpit with a raging, vengeful God as seen here. Every believer knows this conflict and how often have we heard it raised as an objection from those who do not believe. It always begins, if God is love, how can he allow or do X, Y, Z? That's a fair question. The first part of the answer is that God does allow. And we ought to like that he does that. He freely allows us to choose his way or our own. And that's a great privilege and responsibility. Because what is the only other option to being able to choose? Nothing. No choice. To be a robot programmed only to do what God wants. To live in a world ordered by a puppet master, dancing on those strings. 
You see, there cannot be any middle ground at all because it isn't possible. Freedom of choice has to be totally and continuously free for it vanishes forever the moment one is forced or manipulated or required to do a thing. I cannot imagine anyone here seriously choosing the option of being a puppet. And that is the only sort of world where things would be ordered to remove all of the bad stuff. No, we love freedom of choice and God loves us to have it. Unfortunately, we can't leave the matter there because we now have to ask what would happen if we were just left to get on with freely choosing without any restraint. For example, if you freely chose to fall asleep in my sermon, I could freely come down and stab you. Repeatedly. As attractive as that idea is to me sometimes, I do have that thought sometimes, it is clear that such a world would be truly awful to live in because you could also come and stab me. That world would be frightening, violent, chaotic. And God knew that chaos would be the consequence of leaving us to get on alone with choosing by our own desires. So he gave us standards to, make us help, to help us make the right choice. And these standards were of and from himself and we have to admit that if that is true, that he made us and the whole universe, then it's fair that he has the right to say what is good and what is bad. But he still gave us the freedom to obey his standards or not and the freedom to live with the consequences. And please note here that we do not have an absent God as some claim. He has not pinned a list of rules up to a tree and then gone off for a snooze. On the contrary, he takes a permanent and active and continuous interest in all matters. The problems come when we choose to do the wrong thing and we do that very regularly. So, what should God do about that? There are only two options. One, do nothing. Look the other way. Or, two, deal with the sin. Punish it. For God, option one is not viable at all. At all. This is another area in which we seriously underestimate him because we do not properly appreciate how very abhorrent and unacceptable sin is to God. As humans we are used to compromise and so we don't get that God is completely uncompromising on the matter of sin. There are no grey areas for him at all. And therefore if he finds sin, he must punish it. And what is the punishment he requires? It is separation from him and death. And by death, let me remind you, like I said, it doesn't just mean lights out because revelation will soon inform us that it really means eternal conscious torment alongside Satan, the beast and the false prophet. So let me be very direct now. How do you feel about that? That you are a sinner too and that unless you have accepted God's gracious offer of salvation through Jesus, you too deserve separation and death and eternal torment. Well, there are two ways you might react. Firstly, there's total rebellion, shaking your fist in the face of God. But really, how's that going to make things any better? And how futile is an ant attacking an elephant? Or, recognising that you are wrong, you might try to make amends to try to balance that bad stuff out with more good stuff in the 
in the hope that it will make things right. But unfortunately that that won't work. It can't work. Because the moment that you commit your first sin, and we all sin, there isn't anyone at all in the whole history of mankind apart from Jesus who hasn't, the moment you sin, God hands up the phone for good and he considers you his enemy. No amount of good deeds will make any difference simply because they are done by a bad man. So what to do then? Well, for the only solution, we must come back full circle to freedom of choice, but in a very particular space. This is the only point where love and justice meet perfectly, and it is the cross on which Jesus died. All of us will experience the reality of this scene and revelation from one side of that cross or the other. We'll be there. We will either experience God's love or his justice. And the cross is so very well named because it is the cross and only the cross that lies across the gap between these two fates to make it possible to move from one to the other, from eternal death to eternal life. So, would you step on that bridge today? After reading about lakes of fire and Eternal conscious punishment, you might say that God is unfair, that his justice is too harsh. But if we reason through the options that we have here today, we should see that the cross is the only remedy for sin. And this is because God is able to do far more than we can reason or think possible. We underestimate his justice and we also underestimate his mercy. His mercy is the power and beauty of the cross. It is there that God shows us that his love and mercy are as great as his holiness and righteousness. He gives us a way back to him for good through Jesus who as the very Son of God sacrificed his own life accepting all of our sin on himself and dying to take the punishment that we deserved. And that meant that God's need for justice is fully satisfied once again we and God can live together as family. All we need to do is freely repent of our sins and accept Jesus as Lord of our lives from that moment on. When someone talks about the book of Revelation, it's usually scenes of fire and brimstone like this one that are the first to spring to mind, and that is the end of it. Revelation does speak of an end, the very end. But actually it's not just about endings, it is more so about new beginnings and the hope of eternal freedom that they bring. The cross is the very narrow gateway to those beginnings. Revelation is about the cross. In the cross we experience the most important free choice in the whole of our lives. We can freely accept it or we can freely reject it. We can choose to begin or to end. But know this, inasmuch as the beginning brings great joy and reward, the end brings terrible suffering and punishment. So we must choose wisely then. Let us pray. O Lord, draw us to your cross. Lie us down before before it, Lord, and cleanse us of our sin. 
We thank you and we praise you for the cross. We thank you for the bridge that it makes back to you. And we look forward to that day when we can stand beside you as our commander and see the enemy defeated for good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.